Amen. As I mentioned, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And uh, if you're a guest with us, thank you for joining us this morning. Good to have you. And uh, it's a blessing to have you here with us. Uh, we always appreciate uh, this location because we get so many uh, tourists that get to come and join with us. And uh, when a tourist takes time on their vacation to worship the Lord, we know they're a serious believer. So it, it, it helps our fellowship, it encourages us, so we're so glad you're here with us this morning. Our, our passage again is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? It is a very unique uh, passage, as, as is chapter 12 and, and 13 and 14. Um, Paul lays out here in in this short 11 verses, the fundamentals of our faith. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he has appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So Paul had finished his exhortation on, on the problem of factions in the Corinthian church, the lack of respect and love for one another, and their misuse of the grace gifts. And now he's moving on to address our future state, um, probably to correct a false teaching that appears to have been circulating that, that the resurrection was only a spiritual resurrection and not a bodily resurrection. Chapter 14, as I said, was so unique in, in that it, was, it is the most descriptive passage on worship service in the early church. And now in chapter 15, we're going to read the most comprehensive passage on, in the scriptures on bodily resurrection. Everything they believed, those Corinthians believed and did, should have been based on this good news that Paul first preached to them. It's the foundation of their faith. It's the foundation of our faith as well. They may have forgotten its importance, and as we tend to do over time, you know, we, uh, we come to church each Sunday and sometimes we get in a routine and it just becomes ritual. And that's, that's why part of the reason we have communion is to break that pattern and remind us this is what it's all about. 
if we would stand firmly on that gospel foundation, the solution uh, to many of the problems we face would be obvious. Communion is our regular reminder. But as we've read in an earlier passage, they were even doing that in an improper manner. The ultimate problem facing mankind is death. The second law of thermodynamics, that, that law that says everything goes from order to disorder, has only been overridden by Jesus in his miracles and in his resurrection. Everything in this world decays. And everybody over 70 said, <laughs> our bodies age and finally they cease to function. You know, biologists tell us that the, that the way the body's designed, it was really kind of created to go on forever. But you know, the, the cells, the, there's these little checkers that run through the DNA and repair any damage or anything that's coded improperly. It's just incredible if you've ever seen these. There's thousands of little machines inside your DNA that, that do all kinds of things to make sure everything goes on as it should. But because of oxidative stress over time, these, these molecules get attacked and, and errors creep through. And as we get older, the errors compound, and that's what we call aging. And eventually, things break down and cease to function. Jesus was the only one that proved that doesn't have to happen or that it can be reversed. American director Woody Allen said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by not dying. He's 86 right now. I don't know how long he'll begin, continue to say that. Denying death is not an option because death is inevitable. It's unavoidable. Delaying death is only temporary because death is universal. And embracing death is unsatisfying because Death is unnatural. Death is the last enemy that's going to be defeated, and it will be defeated. It's a result of this fallen world in which we live. The world is in this condition because of sin. Imagine what it would be like without the law of the second law of thermodynamics. If things didn't decay, if we didn't grow old, Resurrection is the only real evidence that shows there is a way to override this law. Jesus proved it's possible, and that's really the core of the gospel. God loves us, and he's made a way for us to take part in Jesus' victory over death. But even more important is that in our new and eternal bodies, we'll stand before God guiltless because Jesus paid our sin debt. This is what the Corinthians were wavering on and which resulted in so many problems. And so we must ask ourselves if we're living with the life to come in mind. Verse 1 and 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul introduces the basics of the gospel 
by telling them they are being saved if they hold fast to the word he preached to them. Now, that's not the way most evangelical preachers would put this. What is this being saved expression? After all, numerous passages tell us the formula for salvation is, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, that the result of believing is salvation presently, right now, that you have it. Further adding to the difficulty is that pesky little word, if. The fact that both assurance of salvation and the ongoing experience with the word if is at the center of the Calvinist and Arminian debate. And whether they never were saved or they gave up their salvation is a very controversial issue, and it has been in the church for centuries. And I'll leave it to God to explain it to us when we get there. And I'm sure he will. If you think you are saved, though, and you think you can live however you please, you should heed Paul's advice here and let the fear of God encourage you to hold fast to the gospel. But if, on the other hand, you think you're too weak to follow Jesus and you're sure you're just going to fall, remember that Jesus is your shepherd who promised to be with you to the end of the age, to finish the work he started in you. Amen? Is Paul warning them if they go back and trust in obedience to the law, they're not saved? In other words, they believed in vain? If the gospel is just an idea that's not essential to their daily lives, then they are not holding fast to it. That was the root problem behind all their issues. It has always been that issue, religion or relationship. There's another translation for this Greek word that's translated in vain, which might clear up the issue, depending on where you stand on this. The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature gives the translation of that Greek word to be pertaining to being without careful thought, without due consideration, in a haphazard manner. This will tend translate it as having an incoherent belief. And Garland agrees with these translations, but adds, we cannot exclude the possibility that Paul also has in mind the ultimate outcome of such a truncated faith, since it has an impact on their salvation. In other words, they are saved if they hold fast to the word preached unless their initial belief was incomplete. Now, whichever translation is closer to Paul's intended meaning, we should all, whichever side you fall on that debate, we should all take Paul's advice and hold fast to the word that was preached to us. And that's what he's about to explain. This is, this, these 11 verses are the word that was preached to them. Verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, with the scriptures. This is one of the earliest written statements of the faith of the early church. Now, this was written around in the 80-50s, um, 20 plus years after Jesus ascended, 
But Paul must have heard this from the apostles only a few years after Jesus' death. Paul did not originate the message he gave them. He simply passed on what he had received. This is the accepted language for handing, handing on a tradition. What follows is a very early summary of the church's traditional teaching. Paul is not working on some views he's worked out for himself. He's passing on what he's been told. This is the kerygma, the proclamation, the gospel preached in the early church. And it begins by telling us that the death of Christ was for our sins. Now, this idea that he... he received it, he's passing on the tradition only from what he heard, in a way contradicts Galatians 1, 11, and 12, in which Paul says he didn't receive the revelation from man, but I think it's easy, easily resolved in that he found the same truth when he studied the scriptures while he was in the wilderness of Arabia, but then he had it reaffirmed when he met the apostles in Jerusalem, who would have shared with him about Jesus' life and ministry. So this is the tradition, and he did receive it from the apostles, though Jesus also revealed it to Paul and affirmed it through the apostles. Jarsalav Pelagin wrote, if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. Timothy Keller has written, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That makes all the difference. What is of first importance to the gospel and in believers' lives as well is this list of facts that Paul's laying out here. The first is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah the prophet wrote in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That he died for our sins is the answer to our dilemma of how we can stand before a holy God. And answer for the evil to which we've succumbed. If you say, well, what if we just outweigh the evil with good deeds, as the Muslims and many other faiths do? I don't think it's being intellectually honest. When we think that way, we're not considering the holiness of God. Lejean mentioned Isaiah 6. Whenever we get really in the presence of God, when God reveals himself, manifests revelation of who he is, we, we would do like Isaiah. We fall flat on our face and say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. The problem is we don't realize how holy and how pure God is. 
And so we think maybe we can do enough good deeds to outweigh those bad deeds. We, we can be more holy like God is holy. We're not considering the holiness of God. In fact, that the fact that all we have and all we are is a gift from him and how evil our thoughts and desires often are should straighten us out. Jesus told us the great command is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have you done it? If we haven't done the great one, we probably haven't done the second one either, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. How are you doing? Thank God Jesus took our place. Amen. In accordance with the scriptures, he is seen clearly in this prediction of Isaiah in chapter 53, but also in the one-sided covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. We went over that uh, two or three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, when, when God made that covenant with Abraham and they're supposed to both walk through the blood and whoever breaks the covenant is, is gonna be torn apart like those animals. But God put Abraham in a trance and wouldn't let him go through the blood. God went through it for both of them. In other words, saying that if either of us fails, I will take the punishment that this covenant might continue. It's also in accordance with Jewish worship laws in which the sins of the people were placed on the head of those sacrificial animals or on the head of the scapegoat. And yet it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what was that pointing to? What was that about? That's why John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In hindsight, we can see that the entire Old Testament points forward to this res resolution of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden by a substitute who could take our sins and make us righteous before God. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus' death for our sins, his burial, his resurrection on the third day, all fulfillment of the prophecies. Um, now, uh, scholars have a difficult time with uh, the, wait a minute, what, where does it say in scripture on the third day? Well, I really would refer you to Hosea chapter six, verse two. And they say, well, that's about Israel. Yes, and Jesus is the new Israel. Do you think it was just written about them? So many passages in the Old Testament, so many of the three-day passages are types and shadows pointing forward to Christ and what he would do. That's why Jesus said when he met with the 12 after the resurrection, everything about me and the law, the prophets and the writings all point to me. It's all about him. This is the essence of the gospel. Now, there's thousands of peripheral issues, doctrines, some of which Paul's gone over in this letter, but this is the core of our faith. Of course, his death for our sins is dependent on the fact that he was sinless, the righteous one, and therefore he had to be God incarnate, born of a virgin. You know, I, I, just even this week, I had somebody ask me, I don't know if Jesus was God. Well, <laughs> You're probably not saved then because 
a man can't die for another man's sin because we're all born in sin and we have our own sin to die for. He had to, it had to be a sinless one. His resurrection testifies to the fact that the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. The core of the gospel depends on conditions that also are inferred, such as the virgin birth and the sinless life of Jesus. He was buried. Jesus' corpse lay in a tomb. And even that was predicted in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. He was raised. The tense of the verb now changes here in this passage to the perfect tense, one that belongs in the past but affects us presently. He was raised. And also, just going back to the third day, Jesus referred to Jonah and the three days. The third day refers to the day after tomorrow. That's why, you know, some people struggle with, wait a minute, Friday to Sunday morning isn't three days. In the Jewish mind, when they say three days or the third day, they mean the day after tomorrow. Friday, next day is Saturday, the day after is Sunday. So buried on Friday afternoon, raised on Sunday morning is in complete accord with the three days. Resurrection is the hope and the present power that Corinthians needed to keep from following the Corinthian culture of competition and division. It's that hope and power within us that keeps us from conforming to the world around us. Verse 5 to 7, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. The only account we have of this first meeting that's mentioned here uh, with Peter, uh, referred to as Cephas here, is in Luke 24, 33, and 34. And it really doesn't tell us any information, just that the Lord met with Peter. Oswald Chambers writes, Peter had denied Jesus Christ with oaths and curses, and yet after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter alone. He restored him in private, and then he restored him before the others. Resurrection appearances to over 500 people is a certain confirmation that he did indeed conquer death. We, now, we don't have any other record of the 500 who saw Jesus, but the readers must have heard of the event. And Paul added that most of the 500 were still alive when this was written in the 50s. And that would confirm the account. Some of the 500 had since died, referred to here as asleep, which is a Jewish metaphor, a, a gentle way of saying they passed on. Some of the 500 had since died, but that the, they, the ones that were living were eyewitnesses that could be checked. Jewish law required the testimony of two or three witnesses. So how's 500 for you? It pretty well confirms Jesus rose from the dead. And then he had that special meeting with James, of which, again, which we know nothing about other than this, this passage. And finally, the apostles at the ascension, which probably includes the apostle that was chosen to take Judas' place. He'd be chosen afterwards, but he was probably there at the time. 
Paul takes several verses to identify all these eyewitnesses who were still living to reinforce the most amazing and essential part of the gospel. If Jesus only said he was dying for the sins of the world, how could we know that it was truly the case? How could we know that God accepted that sacrifice for our sins? The resurrection with the hundreds of witnesses and the accompanying facts, such as the empty tomb, the failure to find the body, the disciples' willingness to die for that truth, are, are details that confirm our faith. Verse 8, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So shortly after the ascension, somewhere between one to three years, scholars believe, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Untimely born is an interesting word in Greek. It literally means abortion or miscarriage. So unlike the other apostles, he hadn't heard Jesus teach. He hadn't seen his miracles. He hadn't walked and talked with Christ he wasn't chosen on the shores of Galilee. It was a choice of God that no one saw coming. Never underestimate the power of God to turn a life completely around. It demonstrates the greatness of God's grace. You know, sometimes someone will say to me, boy, that guy is, he's so antichrist, you know? And I say, yeah, maybe he's another apostle Paul. Apostles were chosen to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, and Paul was certain of his apostleship because Jesus told him through Ananias' prophecy that he was a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. That's one way to say he's an apostle, an official, who, one who officially represents someone in authority. In Ephesians 1.1, and the first verse of this letter, he tells us it was by the will of God that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.1 tells us Paul, an apostle, not from men, not through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now that's another fact that supports the resurrection. Paul was a devout Jewish leader whose whole life had been trying to climb the Jewish ladder of authority and success. His passion to persecute Christians came from the fact that he believed this Jesus was a false Messiah that was leading Jews astray. He thought they were corrupting Judaism. So he got letters from the Sanhedrin to go to the synagogues in Damascus and round up those Christians and take them to Jerusalem to be tried, to be put in prison. And that's when Jesus appeared to him, just before he arrived in Damascus. His about face was instantaneous. The man he thought to be a false Messiah, he then proclaimed to be the true Messiah that his nation had killed. He threw all the, away all the respect that he had earned from his leaders and preached Jesus as the Messiah and the fulfillment of prophecies. Now that must have sent shockwaves throughout the Jewish world. Verse 9 and 10, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. Paul's humility in being called an apostle stems from that former life of persecuting Christians. Because of that, he was zealous to give himself totally to Jesus, to his service by yielding to the grace of God in him. He later wrote in another letter that he was the least of the saints, least of the apostles, least of the saints in Ephesians 3, 7, and 8. And then in one of his last letters, 1 Timothy 1 to 15, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Do you see the progression in humility? It seems his humility increased over time as he saw the Holy Spirit working through him to bring so many to Jesus. We should all acknowledge that the true kingdom work in any of us is the grace of God who makes us what we are. Amen? Don't let the grace of God in you be in vain. I think he was contrasting it earlier with what he said to the Corinthian believers that unless they believed in vain, he's saying, I didn't want my belief to be in vain. I worked harder than all the other apostles. Give it all you have. Amen? Does Jesus deserve anything less? Verse 10 reveals that interesting combination of working hard, but knowing it's the grace of God that's empowered us to do so. Pastor Stephen Um sums up the work of God that Paul is describing. He writes, the gospel decenters unbelievers from the center of their own lives. They recognize their unworthiness. They recognize they are what they are by grace. The gospel is now a functional identity. Without effort or work, Christians are put in the perfect relationship with God and experience all the benefits of union with Christ. His incarnation means that he always meets everyone where he or she is. His perfect life means that Christians are perfectly accepted by God, regardless of their ability to be righteous. His substitutionary death means that Christians need no longer fear punishment for their sins. He has borne the full penalty. His burial means that his death on one's behalf was no mirage, and that someone has gone to face the consequences to replace death. His resurrection means that death has been defeated. It's been stripped of its power and sting. Christians ultimately will be raised again to new life because of their union with their resurrected Christ. End of quote. The undeserved grace of God empowers us to be and do all that God had planned for us to do before we were even born. Now made right with God, some would say that there's nothing we need to do. On the contrary, Paul says that grace enables us to work harder out of gratitude for what, he's been, what has been freely given to us. Paul's zeal to plant churches and spread the gospel seems to have motivated the other apostles to get out of Jerusalem and start planting churches to do what Jesus had told them to do. If we're willing and cooperating, 
It's the power of God in us doing the work. And all the credit goes to God. But are we yielding to the power? Are we serving out of gratitude? How is the grace of God working in your life? Verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. All those who proclaim the gospel to the Corinthians shared the same foundational message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. Different styles and personalities, but the same unified message, the same grace in each, empowered by the same Holy Spirit, and all for building up the body to be more like Jesus. Paul's still pointing out the need to not center their faith around men, but on the Lord, whose grace empowers all of them and all of us as well. The gospel tells us our sin debt, past, present, and future was paid in full on the cross. Amen. We say goodbye to past guilt and only look back to consider how great a deliverance is ours in Jesus. Presently, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to temptation and to walk in the Spirit. When we stumble, we're reminded that the sacrifice of Jesus paid it all. And we are even more determined to let Jesus' life be manifested in us. We look forward to the fulfillment of God's promises, to the completion of our salvation, to our heavenly sinless bodies, and to eternity in our Savior's loving presence, all of which is a result of this proclamation that Paul received by revelation and the apostles' testimony. This good news is at the center of our lives, believers. Jesus declared that if we want to find life, we must first lose it. We must die with Christ on the cross to our will and to our ways and welcome his resurrected life to be our life. That's the deepest joy. That is the greatest fulfillment. I'm going to ask Jill if she would lead us in a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction.